I'm Hillary. And I'm Sandra. Coming up on this episode, we're going to talk to a couple of surrogate partners. Yeah, it's a really interesting type of therapy I had never heard about that is talk therapy, but there's also sexual touching involved if needed. It's kind of like the bonus plan if we had to get more specific. <laughs> so we're going to talk to two surrogate partners, one by the name of Andrew, and he's going to talk to us about the technical side of being a surrogate partner. And then we're going to talk to Vina, who talks about how being a surrogate partner has affected her own life and some of the relationships she's formed with her clients. The Quick and the Dirty Podcast with Hillary Welch and Sandra Blagakis. Hillary, I'm living my fantasy. <laughs> Which one? I mean, you've shared a few over the years, oh, but I need to know which. All I can tell you is that I'm going to be biking in the next four weeks with bearded bikers, and um, I'm just, I'm just hot and horny over the whole thing. <laughs> I'm so horned up over okay. this. Uh, is it the bikes or is it the beards? It's the bikes and the beards. And I'm getting my motorcycle license in the next little while to ride for this charity ride. And in the process, I'm spending a lot of time with bearded bikers. And all I've ever wanted in my life, and I've been very clear about this, Hills, I just wanted, to, I would love to fall into a nest of bearded bikers. <laughs> and they will catch me ever so gingerly. And then you'll never see me again. Okay. So do you have like... When it comes to to beards, yeah. do you have a preference? Like, are you gray beard, black beard, brown beard, <laughs> red beard? Well, I will. There are so many flavors. I'm an equal opportunity beard lover, except, and I feel bad saying this, but I actually don't. I don't like the ginge. I don't like the ginge beards. I am not down with the ginge beards. Why? It's a balanced thing, though. Like, there's a good ginge beard and a bad ginge there beard. Is no, there's no in-betweens. I don't think there's any such thing as any kind of ginge hair being good because they look like gritty from the <laughs> penguins. You know, their mascot with the googly eyes. That's When I see a ginge with a beard, I think of gritty. And I think, put on your penguins jersey and skate away. Is that like, Even if it's, like, all very well-groomed? Uh, no, I can't get past. I, you know what it is too, because I I like I like dark. I like um, I just I like a different kind of a look. And to me, the ginge has the weird eyebrows, and I don't even know if it's about the beard. I look at the <laughs> well, it's because their hair is clear. Like I will admit that. <laughs> but think about it this way: so one of my major serious relationships was with a ginger bearded guy. Really? And we dated for five years. And, like, he balanced it, though. He shaved the head on top. So there was no hair on top, and it was just, like, the nice groomed beard. But the benefit to red hair, which you don't think of, think about male body hair. Okay. So it was there, but it was clear. Uh, so there was, like, it, it doesn't really show up on the body in, like, that weird, gross hair way. But then it's like you're, you're with someone who has no hair is what you're saying. No, like it's still there, but because it's light, it's like it's kind of not there. Like it doesn't look dirty. Uh, I see. I like I like prison dirty. <laughs> you like it dirty. I like it dirty. <laughs> I want to see hair. I want to stick my hands in it. If I could just get snagged in it, oh, I'd be even happier. Um, <laughs> caught forever like a spider in a web. You just want it to be more than you have. <laughs> Well, that's what I always say. It's a reason I, if you saw my, you've seen my husband without his shirt off in Jamaica. Right. There's more hair than skin. (laughs) When he gets out of the ocean, he doesn't towel off. He shakes off. (laughs) 
it's just migrating from the top down. It is right. Like it's. it's but I like hair. I find I find a like a dark hair on a guy and furry. I find that manly and sexy. And you know, again, I feel bad because I we talk about body image issues all the time, and here I am body shaming the ginger <laughs> like, in your hair. I feel bad about that. Hey, hey gritty, hey, get out of my bed, gritty. You're a shitty lay. Imagine waking up to that, though. He turns over in the morning and gun 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 the eye. He's wearing a helmet. Or you look up in the middle of coitus and he's on top of you with those eyes. Are you are you down with gritty hills? You and your sexy beard man, that that ginge beard and the helmet and the eyes. You know what? I'm down with the ginge. The googly eyes gotta go though. If you have Googlers, you're out. Some are here, some are there. <laughs> I can't even handle it. So are you did I just ruin ginger men for you right no, now? No, not at all. Because like for me, I like a ginger guy, but he's gotta be like a gruff Scottish warrior looking ginger guy. <laughs> With like a blade in his back pocket kind right. of thing. Or a sword somewhere. That's what, because that, I don't know. I, I, like maybe uh, some blue face paint. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> so you want to date Braveheart is what you're saying. <laughs> right. Right. Or, or the guy from Outlander. I would accept him as well. So this is... Please bring your kilt. Thank you. There are no in-betweens, I feel like, with, with gingers. You're either gritty or you're Braveheart. <laughs> so there's nothing happening in between. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's funny because I was talking about uh, my love of bearded men on my radio show. And, and this is how this whole conversation sparked. One of the guys that listened to my show sent me a picture of his beard, I guess. Okay. And he was a ginge. And I'm like, ah, ah. did you do that to his face? The poor guy. No, but that's, that was my honest reaction. He was like, I didn't do that on the air. He sent me. <laughs> Thank you. He DM'd Thank me you. his picture. And he, like, it was so the it hottest was like thing. a bad D pick you didn't ask for. <laughs> also, can I just address that for one second? Okay. Am I the only person in the world who's never had a dick pic sent to her? Uh, uh maybe it's just generational. Be- I because well, like you haven't dated since the internet became a thing. But creepy men <laughs> sent like creepy men send dick pics all the time, especially to all my girlfriends, whether you are on the radio or not. Like all women have had some rando stranger send one, and there's like I kind of feel bad that I haven't had a dick pic sent to me yet. Well, to be fair, because of your radio show, a lot of people know your personality, and I'm sure they're like. Mm, she'd bite that thing right off if she didn't want it. Like, you don't take she, crap. She'd bite that thing. <laughs> I'll crack it in half. I'll tell you that right yeah, now. Yeah, like if it was unsolicited, I think you would be like, you'd be offended. Whereas, like, if you wanted it, Tim, <laughs> wink, wink, send one over now. She needs to fulfill this fantasy. Um, You've had a dick pic sent to you, though, haven't you? Oh, 100%. And? Uh, uh, whatever. Sometimes they're not random. Sometimes they're just funny. Like, <laughs> like I would like it if someone drew a face on it and did like a puppet show. Right. I'd be like, oh, thanks for entertaining me. As long as, so, as, long as you're not a ginge, I'm down. Right. So my boyfriend would never send me his own. <laughs> but sometimes as a joke, he'll find some <laughs> and like send me one. Oh, <laughs> oh that's funny. <laughs> So do you think that that's possible that gross men who do DM women with those pictures are not sending theirs or just trying to get some kind of reaction? Oh, yeah. It's just attention. 
It's just like the people who send mean messages online. They want you to react. They want you to react. Well, my I've always said if I get one of those pictures, the first thing I'm going to do is take a real picture of me naked and send it back and say, there, <laughs> now how do you feel about yourself? I just send back, not impressed. That's good, too. That's good, too. Yeah. How do we that get, all you got? How do we get from ginger beards to gritty to dick pics, Hillary? Well, it's you and I. That's, Anything can happen. That's true. So we're going to get down to business right now. We actually have two guests on the podcast. Our first guest is a surrogate partner. This is Andrew Hartman. Now, for people who uh, don't know what a surrogate partner is, what exactly is it? Basically, a surrogate partner is someone who forms a temporary relationship under the supervision of a therapist with a client to give that client a real-life environment to learn about relationship skills and to overcome anxiety. It's oriented specifically for someone who hasn't had the type of connections or relationships or intimacy that they wanted to have in their life, but haven't found any other way to resolve those difficulties. So you have, I, I, I know we've, we've spoken of the fact that you have a, an issue with the term sexual surrogate, which has been a term used to describe what you do for a living. So what is the difference between a sexual surrogate, again, I know you take issue with that term, and a surrogate partner? There, as you said, there may be sexual contact as part of the work in certain specific situations. However, there's a whole lot of other stuff that has to happen. The client is not paying for sexual contact. The client is paying to have a real-life environment to learn the skills that they need to learn and to overcome the difficulties that they've had around that. Okay. Now, so the work involves uh, boundaries and self-awareness and body image, and um, there's three people involved in this therapy. There's the client, of course, and the work is customized for the client, you know, specifically based on their goals and their needs. It's a goal-driven process. Then there's the surrogate who does experiential hands-on work with the client and forms a temporary relationship directly with them. And there's also a verbal therapist. It usually starts out where all three of us meet together in one room to get really clear about what the goals are and the intent of the therapy. And then after that, the client meets separately with the surrogate and then meets separately with the therapist, alternating between the two. And then the surrogate will have a conversation with the therapist between every session, usually by phone. And in that session, I will let them know what happened, what I just did with the client in our most recent session, um, and then ask for their recommendations of um, suggestions they have for how to move forward, what kind of experiential exercises are going to help um, move the client toward their goals. So what does a typical session with a client look like with you? We start out with uh, communication exercises where we practice making requests. We practice hearing no. We practice saying no. We practice giving different answers. And then we also do simple touching exercises 
Now, are there challenges in the kind of therapy that you do? Because it would be weird for me to sit down with a stranger and work towards touch in a pleasurable way if I weren't at all attracted to them. Like, I don't know how I would work through those feelings because attraction is such a huge part of sexuality. I have found that I'm always able to find something attractive and even something powerfully attractive about the person that I'm working with. And if they engage in the process in that way, it it works for them as well. Andrew, how do you not fall in love with your clients and how do they not fall in love with you? Because when you spend all that time building intimacy and, and, and you start developing emotions and feelings, for me, I don't know if I, I wouldn't fall in love with the person who was close to me the way you are close to your clients. How do you do that? It's a genuine relationship. It's a real relationship. And there are genuine feelings that arise. Real, real feelings that arrive, both on behalf of the client and both on behalf of the surrogate. We want the client to have experience with every phase of the life cycle of relationships, including the ending, because some of them come into the therapy so afraid of what happens at the end of the relationship that they won't even take the risk to begin the relationship in the first place. But when you know that those feelings can be managed and survived, and even appreciated in a way. That saying, you know, better to have loved and lost than to have never have loved at all. Well, heartbreak is part of it. Heartbreak is part of relationships and hurt feelings and getting over things. That's part of moving on and becoming a better partner, I guess. Andrew, thank you so much for being a guest on the Quick and the Dirty podcast today. I can't thank you enough, especially given the fact that you're three hours behind us and you have to wake up super early to do this interview. We really appreciate it. We're really lucky to be joined today by Vina Blanchard. She is also a surrogate partner, but we're going to talk more about how working as a surrogate partner can affect your own life. So, you know, I have to be honest with you, Vina. I had not even heard the term uh, surrogate partner up until recently. We were actually doing a podcast uh, with a sex coach who brought it up, and I was, uh, it was new to me, to be honest with you. I'm so ignorant. What can I say? But, um, if it was if I'm ignorant to it now in 2019, I can't imagine what it was like 30 years ago and how it was received when you told people you were a surrogate partner. Uh, so some of your friends said that you should be doing it. But what did your family think about your line of work? My mother was from the beginning a fan. She It made sense to her. My father said it didn't make sense to him. It confused him. He trusted me as a person of integrity. So he um, gave it some thought. And in the end, he said, it would be nice if I had a job that was a little easier to explain to his friends, but uh, <laughs> I bet, yeah. he could see that it was a valuable thing to do. Right? <laughs> was it weird as a 19-year-old getting into this line of work? I can only assume you are quite attractive. I have not seen any pictures. But how do you protect yourself as a 19-year-old going into this kind of work with with strangers? I, there is a, a certain level of complication there. So all my referrals come from therapists, so the clients are already in therapy, and they've spent a bunch of time trying to solve their problems without working with the surrogate partner. But there are some problems that just 
um, are very hard to fix on our own. Masters and Johnson found that sexual problems, for instance, were better solved working with a partner. And so all my referrals come from therapists who've already screened, reviewed those clients. And then the process is we meet for the first time in the therapist's office. And every session is just a very slow stretch from the previous session. So we're getting to know each other over time. I want to ask about your private life and any other relationships that you've had. Uh, And I I hope I'm not being too personal, but if you've had um, a partner, how have they received your line of work? How did that play out in your private life? Well, keeping in mind how young I was back then, every (laughs) partner I've met since then has known that I'm a surrogate partner. So it's part of what they have to come to terms with when they enter a relationship with me. And it means that they share me in some way with um, other people. Uh, I also have a child and I have a family and I have a professional organization and trainees. And so one of the hardest things about being in relationship with me is, in fact, that everyone has to share me with everyone else. (laughs) Some of my partners um, have been... A psychologist and in the field and had a better understanding of what it's like to have deep compassion for your clients, but not be in love with them or running away with them. And some of my partners have not been in the field. I've been married for a super long time now. And um, I'm kind of like my a father, my husband, thinks it would be nice if my job was a little easier to explain to other people. <laughs> right. And what about your child? Like, I know when my parents talk about their romantic life, I like to pretend that it doesn't exist and that I was a miraculous birth. Uh, but Same. your daughter knows that you have some level of uh, intimate touch with people that are not only their their parent, but also your clients. Right. Well, my my child is now an adult, uh, so I get to see the how the process turned out. And when she was younger, I shared a lot of information with her about the um, uh, talk therapy part of my practice. And um, I didn't talk very much about sexuality uh, in my personal life whether it was my personal uh, sexuality or sexuality related to my work. She did understand that I answered questions about sex and that my clients had concerns about sexuality. And and little by little, as she got older, um, it became more appropriate to share more information with her. She's a, a really bright and compassionate human being. And so in the end, I don't know if it, shaped her to be a person that I admire and that the world admires or um, or just didn't have a bad effect on her. But uh, her relationship with me now around it is, uh, I think, one of deep understanding. And um, she has her own work in her own field, but she has, a, I think, a deeper understanding of this work than the average person being exposed Little by little, one of the common misunderstandings about surrogate partner therapy is that it's all about sex, and it's really not. It's about helping people build skills 
and the consciousness that's necessary to have healthy, happy sexuality. But that doesn't mean that it's all about practicing sex. It's about practicing relaxation and about um, being educated about the human body and respecting one's own feelings and learning about consent. And, um, and when one understands the sort of depth at which this therapy takes place, it's not so much uh, uh, a shock uh, to a child when they later realize it also has to do with sexuality. And emotions, uh, because you, uh, again, you develop an intimate relationship with a client. Have you ever had trouble separating the professional from the personal? That is The question suggests that those are two discrete categories. The truth is, as human beings, we have emotional connections with the people we work with, the people we spend time with. And that's true for therapists and their clients. They care about those clients. The difference is, in this, we don't have the traditional boundary of keeping clothing on. Uh, But I think it's the same, you know, whether... You know, you're working in an office or you're working in um, a therapy environment that uh, clients and therapists and surrogates all develop degrees of affection and attachment to each other. But we have rules and uh, that one of those rules is that we don't get together in the middle of the week to hang out. We're not talking on the phone just to chit-chat about our days, and we're not going to the movies or sleeping over. We have uh, specific session times, and we ultimately know that the relationship will end. Um, and um, almost always there is a kind of love and affection, a deep friendship between surrogates and their clients. Um, just the way there are, you know, when you have, uh, if any of you have been in therapy, you develop an affection for your therapist because you're both so vulnerable in the process. But, you know, you're going to let them go. And and also that they were not your romantic partner um, in the sense of uh, becoming obsessive or uh, spending all your days and hours and minutes and waking and sleeping thinking about them. We're keeping the client focused on their future and the life they're going to have with someone else down the road. Now, I would imagine that it's quite common uh, for those clients to get very attached to you. I know that it's your uh, your goal to keep things professional and you do, uh, you're very well regulated. But have you ever been in a situation where a client has become kind of obsessive? Um, I have not had a situation where a client became obsessive. And uh, you run, you've never had a, a situation where a client has actually fallen in love? Like, how how do you put, how do you let somebody down? So, I, there are two ways of answering that question. And I think one is, yes, clients have had moments of feeling in love. And generally what the therapist and I are able to help them see is what they're really in love with is their new sense of self and the freedom that they're experiencing as a result of the changes that they've made in therapy. That it's not me so much as their new you or new self that they are uh, in love with. And not in a narcissistic way, but just it feels great. So they love the way they feel. Um, And 
um, because the client is also in therapy for the entire duration of the surrogate partner therapy, they're talking with their therapist about those feelings and the therapist is helping them understand them uh, and and to kind of process them. And generally what happens is they resolve on their own. Do you think that uh, in real life relationships, sometimes we're not in love with our partner? We're in love with how we feel and what we become in our relationships, just like your clients have maybe felt about you? Absolutely. I think that's the nature of infatuation and in loveness. It's, It's all very much about the present yeah, and, and you just like who you are with that person. You're maybe a great version of yourself. Absolutely. I have to ask you this question, and you may think it's a stupid question, but um, that's what I do. Um, <laughs> are you the most sexually secure person on the planet, Vina? <laughs> and can you teach me those things? How? Because you would have to be sexual. So I'm just so amazed that you, I mean, I, I just think of a surrogate partner, and I realize sex isn't, a big part of it, like you said, I get that. But of course, that's what I'm obsessed with now. You, you, you hang out with men and you show them the ways. Like, how do you become so sexually secure, woman? Well, I wouldn't say that I'm, um, I have no idea who is the most sexually secure person on the planet. Well, it's not um, me. Like I'll tell you that, that right now. It's, <laughs> I'm not even in the running. <laughs> I think because what I am secure in is that this process really works. It takes place in stages. So we're getting familiar with each other. We're talking with each other. I'm teaching basic skills in relaxation, teaching them how to figure out how they feel and to put words to that and share it with someone. So communication skills and teaching them to focus their attention in their own body, on their own sensations. And truly, those three things, knowing your feelings and being able to communicate them, being able to relax and to focus your mind and your sensations are the foundational skills for healthy sexuality for everyone. And I'm totally confident about that concept and in teaching those things. And then the second stage of the work, we're using those skills in Um, uh, an increasing level of sensuality. But the first two stages have nothing to do with sex. The first phase is touching things like hands and feet and face and objects and being relaxed and letting go of sexual agenda. The second phase is being able to address body image issues and uh, increasing levels of nudity and emotional connection and processing the resistance to not only physically relaxing, but relaxing our emotional selves, letting our guard down and someone in. Once those two things, those two phases have been successful, what I know is true for most people is that there's most of the sexual issues are already resolved. Some people never need to go beyond those first two phases. I'm very comfortable emotionally. I I think that's my great skill is being able to be very present and very connected with the person who's in front of me and patient and non-judgmental as they struggle with their emotional self. So I don't think very much about explicit sexuality because that's not where the biggest 
uh, chunk of work is. But the third phase is where we do address any remaining sexual dysfunction or anxieties that are specifically about sexuality and might even include sexual touching. Um, certainly, it involves a lot of education about sexuality. And finally, a kind of freedom that they feel. And then the fourth phase is the closure phase where we say goodbye. Now, you've been doing this for decades, you said. Uh, yep. You started when you were quite young, like 19. Have you noticed the age of your clients change as you age? Like, have you always served a, a broad range of clients? Does it change your relationship when the, with them at all? When I started the work, I was receiving referrals, of course, for the younger clients and uh, surrogates who were older than I was were uh, perhaps getting some of the more mature clients. Um, and then uh, as I had more experience, I worked with the entire range of clients from, you know, 19 to 90. The um, it, As I mature and there are now people younger than me, they're more likely to get the referrals for younger clients. But we, I think we think of age in a kind of um, sort of big category way. So, you know, within a 20-year radius of a person's age rather than, you know, two or three years the way we did in high school. And I do notice that um, it, it feels more appropriate to me to be partnered with people closer to my age and to refer um clients in their 20s to surrogates who are in their 20s and 30s or maybe even early 40s. Well, I just think like even for myself to get naked in front of somebody who's 20 years younger than me would be odd. (laughs) Like that's a lot of pressure to be confident. You know, I always had body image issues, even when I was now had a body I would kill to have again. Um, But um, (laughs) But those were my insecurities, and I recognize them as just mine. I think as I've aged, they've gotten a little, um, uh, they've changed. I rec- I've become the body I thought I had rather than actually uh, it being a distortion. And I am myself in my life more comfortable with people a little more mature, uh, both psychologically and physically. And we understand each other's life phase. Yeah, it it certainly changes. A younger surrogate can partner with a mature person. Most surrogates relate to the person who lives inside the body rather than to the body itself. Um, You must get a lot of joy from the connections that you form because, I mean, that's how I I love connecting with people and connections are sort of what drives me. And I I see that in you, obviously, too. You've made a living out of it. Um, Do you, I know what you're clients are getting out of it, but what do you get out of this profession of yours? Well, like you, I love making connections. I love people's stories, how they came to be who they are, and getting to know that helps me to see perhaps where the gaps are in their learning or their uh, relationship with self. So that, just the getting to know someone is exciting for me. And um Watching people grow and change, being in the room when they are having epiphanies is a magnificent experience. And then getting the letters and emails from people decades later sometimes saying, this changed my life. 
I, you know, I just had a child or I had my grandchild and none of this would have been possible without the work we did. Honestly, it's deeply, deeply moving. I had a contact, an email from a client who had a significant uh, congenital disability and had um, told me while we were working together that he would never be willing to have a child because he wouldn't want to pass on his disability to a child. And then he sent me years later, not many, you know, maybe five years later, seven years later, an email uh, announcing the birth of his son because he had come to love and accept himself and allow himself the intimacy with a partner. And he married and had a child, not as afraid that his child would be like him. It wasn't such a bad thing anymore. That sounds so rewarding. When I'm on... When I'm on my deathbed, I am absolutely certain that whatever else I've done in this life, I will know I did good deeds. And what about uh, the next generation of surrogate partners? Is there a next generation? I mean, is this this is a field that I mean, I, again, I only just recently started learning about it, uh, and you've been doing it for so long. But is are there? What I'm what I'm trying to ask is this: Is there more of a need for surrogate partners now than ever before? And are you drawing a lot of people into the field? I don't think there's more of a need. There was always a need, and some kinds of problems are more easily solved because we have a lot more information on the internet and in books for people to read and solve their own problems. But there are still difficulties that require working with a partner to solve. And there are uh, people drawn to the work uh, in increasing numbers. Um, I think the greatest challenge is finding therapists who are comfortable working with surrogate partners and making the referral to them. The clients are there, and uh, there are increasing number of surrogates. Masters and Johnson introduced this concept back in 1970, and when they first published their book about sex therapy and included a a part about referring single clients to work with partner surrogates, and uh, it sort of expanded from 1970 through the mid-80s, and we had hundreds of surrogates in the country, not thousands, hundreds. Then there was a big political and cultural shift and um, healthcare shift in the 80s that led to a kind of contraction. And then by the mid-90s, it began slightly to grow a little bit. And now I think um, there are lots more surrogates around the country. There was one point where it seemed like every surrogate in the country had been trained by me. Um, <laughs> and uh, and now there's some people who... Uh, they then that number has grown over the decades, and I think that um, I see it continuing to expand. The hard thing is getting good training and ethical surrogate partners who really know what they're doing because there are some people who claim to be surrogates and really aren't trained and don't know what they're doing, they're just making it up on their own. It's not based on the science that is dependable and um, leads to such great successes for the rest of us. So we need therapists who are trained to do the work and surrogates who are trained to do the work so that they serve the clients well. 
Well, Vina, thank you so much for joining us today on the Quick and the Dirty podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you and your life a little bit and uh, learning about what you do. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Vina. This episode is over, but the conversation doesn't have to be. Follow Hillary and Sandra on social. Instagram at Hillary on Air, at Sandra Kiss 1053. Twitter at Hillary Welch, at Sandra Kiss 1053. And on Facebook at Quick and Dirty Podcast. Got a question? Email Hillary and Sandra, the quick and the dirty at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can download the podcast each week to your mobile device to listen offline. Find the quick and the dirty on FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com, iTunes, or wherever you download your podcasts.